Hello and welcome to this episode of the CMS Oil and Gas Annual Review podcast series. In this series, we discuss the latest developments in English oil and gas law and what they mean for the industry. I'm Valerie Allen, an Energy Disputes Partner in our Aberdeen office, and I'm joined by Philip Ashley, an Energy Disputes Partner in our London office, and Norman Wisely, an Energy Partner in our Aberdeen office. And in this episode, we will be discussing joint operating agreements and how those should be interpreted. Norman, would you like to outline for us uh, the facts of the case that we're going to discuss? Certainly. So the the case we're going to discuss, Valerie, is the case of uh, Taka Britanni and others against Rockrose. Now, this case involved several parties to joint operating agreements in the the North Sea in respect of the Bray area. Um, Taka was one party, GX and Spirit were two other parties, and the operator was Marathon. And Marathon sold out um, by way of a corporate sale to a company called Rockrose. The remaining co-venturers, TACA, Spirit and GX, didn't particularly like the idea of Rockrose coming into the asset and taking operatorship and sought to remove Rockrose as operator of the asset. And the joint operating agreement allowed parties, non-operating parties, to remove the operator in three different ways. Firstly, through 100% of non-operating parties, they could seek to remove the operator at will. Secondly, through a majority vote, they could remove the operator in the event of default or insolvency. And thirdly, the the operator could clearly be removed um, if the operator itself resigned. So when they served notice to remove the operator, Rockrose, Rockrose, not surprisingly, objected to that um, and challenged the validity on which the the non-operators had sought to remove it. Um, Now, the the GOA, as we'll come on to look at, was was fairly clear, but the the way that the um, Rockrose sought to challenge that validity was in three ways, all with elements of an absence of of good faith being present. So the Rockrose argued, firstly, that the the joint operating agreements in question were relational contracts and obligations of good faith should be implied in respect of any removal. So removal at a whim was not possible. Uh, Braganza-type duties were implied, which Philip will come on to look at. And also a a wider implication that as a result of the introduction of maximising economic recovery, Um, by the OGA and the UK government, uh, a collaborative approach was necessary and and therefore it should not have been removed as operator. So on on Rockrose's refusal to acknowledge the validity of the notices, um, the claimants sought a declaration as to the validity. So Philip, I think, is going to come on to take us through the, the decision. Thank you, Norman. As Norman said, the case went up to the commercial court to be decided. And his honour, Judge Pelling, found in favour of the non-operators and decided that the notice had been validly given. Perhaps the easiest way to look at his honour, Judge Pelling's decision is to split the analysis into two halves. The first half dealing with the express terms of the JOA and the second half dealing with the implication of terms. Taking that first half, the express terms. His Honour Judge Pelling considered that the JOA was absolutely clear that it provided the non-operators with an unqualified right to terminate 
the operator. It, he decided this on the basis that the words of the JOA were clear and unambiguous. The words were the operator may be discharged at the end of the calendar month by the operating committee giving not less than 90 days notice to it. Three reasons that his honour Judge Pelling felt that that gave an unqualified right to discharge the operator were as follows. There was no qualification within the words of the clause other than the qualification relating to requiring 100% of the non-operators to support the vote. Second, the decision was a binary one. Either the non-operators voted to discharge the operator or they did not. Third, there was no evaluatory or adjudicatory exercise that the non-operators were carrying out in, in deciding how they voted. It was simply a right that they were entitled to exercise. In one sense, at least, uh, his honour Judge Pelling felt that that was the start and the end of the analysis. Having come to that conclusion, the non-operators simply had an unqualified right to discharge the operator by virtue of the express provisions of the JOA. However, he then went on to analyse the express terms of the JOA as a whole uh, and the impact that they may have upon that conclusion. Looking at the terms of Clause 19, which was the relevant clause in relation to operator removal, it, it, Judge Pelling looked at a number of potentially relevant points. The first point was that the clause also allowed the non-operators to discharge the operator in certain circumstances if a number of events had occurred. His Honour Judge Pelling pointed out that in those circumstances, it was clear that the JOA distinguished between circumstances where a trigger needed to be reached in order for the non-operators to exercise their right to discharge the operator. In other words, if the specified events had occurred and circumstances where there was no need for such events, for example, the removal by 100% of the non-operators for no fault, where the words if were not used. Further, Judge Pelling drew a, a comparison between the right of the non-operators by 100% to discharge the operator and the right of the operator to resign. He pointed out that both of these were circumstances that were uncaveated. In fact, it would be strange if the right of the operator to be removed was caveated. So from that point of view, at least, that was the, the start and the end of the, 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 the analysis. The express terms of the contract were clear. However, the position of Rockrose was that there needed to be an implication of a term, an implied term. On that basis, his honour Judge Pelling then went on to consider whether a term should be implied. In considering this issue, he looked at the test in Marks and Spencer and BMP Paribas as applied in Ali and the Petroleum Company of Trinidad and Tobago. This test is well known to many practitioners and in very short summary, it only allows an implication of a term where it is necessary to in order to give business efficacy to the contract, or it's so obvious that it goes without saying. It must also be fair to imply a term, 
or the court must consider that the parties would have agreed it nonetheless. And in implying such a term, the court will not imply a term that is contrary to an express term. And it was this test that uh, is on a Judge Pelling applied. And he did so in considering both a Braganza type implication and a relational type contract implication, as Norman said. Taking the Braganza type implication first, the, the Braganza case was a case where an employee had died in service. Uh, and having died in service, an issue arose as to whether they were entitled to death in service benefits or not. The employer was entitled to not pay death in service benefits if it had exercised its judgment that the person had died due to their own willful misconduct. In that circumstance, the Supreme Court had decided that the exercise of that discretion by the employer must be circumscribed by acting honestly, rationally and in good faith. His Honour Judge Pelling considered whether there was a parallel with this case and there should be implied a Braganza type term of good faith. In deciding that there was not, His Honour Judge Pelling considered a number of distinct features. First, applying the relevant test for implication of terms, in these circumstances it was not necessary to imply a term in order to make the discharge provisions of the operator work. Second, it was not so obvious that it went without saying. Therefore, it failed to pass the basic test needed for an implied term. Second, His Honour Judge Pelling felt that the Braganza type implied terms were relevant where the decision maker had the power or discretion to form an opinion in relation to the relevant facts. There was no such opinion to be formed here. It was simply a question of exercising a right to vote. Third, His Honour Judge Pelling felt that the Braganza doctrine had no application in circumstances of an unqualified right to determine or terminate contractual provisions. There was no case law to support that proposition. Fourth, in fact, doing so would be an extending the Braganza rights to an extent that there would be an unwarranted interference with a party's freedom to contract. In, in those circumstances, it would have been quite wrong to imply a term along the Braganza lines. Turning to the relational contracts argument, it was common ground between the parties that even if the contract being the JOA here was a relational contract, that in itself did not allow the implication of a term of good faith. It was necessary to go on and apply the relevant test as to whether the relational contract in this circumstance required the implication of a term. In carrying out that task and considering whether this contract, if relational, would require an implication of a term, his Honour Judge Pelling considered the usual test. Was it implicit in the party's understanding and necessary to give business efficacy to the arrangements they'd reached? He reached the conclusion in this circumstance it wasn't. Quite the opposite. 
In fact, the parties had given an unqualified power or right to remove the operator. In those circumstances, it would have been impermissible to imply a term that was contrary to that express right to remove it. And therefore, even if the contract was a relational contract, on the words of the JOA, there was no basis for implying a term. So that deals with the two of the three arguments for an implied term. The third issue that had been raised by Rock Rose as a potential reason for implying a term was the Mer UK strategy and whether that should form the basis for an implied term. Valerie, to consider this issue, over to you. Thanks, Philip. Yes, this was an argument which Rock Rose had um, brought before the court, which rested on the Mare UK strategy that was introduced with the change of regulation of the industry in 2016. And among the supporting obligations and required actions and behaviours in, in the strategy is a, a requirement on the parties to consider whether collaboration would enhance the recovery of the maximum economic value of petroleum from the UKCS. Rock Rose argued that that imposed an obligation on the participants as between themselves and implied a duty as to how they should use the rights on which they were relying. And uh, the court didn't in, in the end accept that argument as valid. Uh, it applied the usual provisions on implication of terms and pointed out that the Mare UK strategy was from 2016, whereas the GOAs that were being considered here had been entered, too many, entered into many years before that, because there were no authorities cited to the court that uh, permitted it to imply terms into a GOA by reference to a post-contractual practice, then the court considered that it wasn't appropriate to rely on Mare UK to imply the obligations into the contract that Rock Rose had argued for. Um, an interesting argument that had been put forward, but but ultimately one which the court did not think permitted any implied terms to be included in their contractual obligations. So as you said, Philip, at the end of the day, the participant, the non-operator participants right was regarded by the court as unfettered and the notices were declared as valid. And that perhaps on the expressed terms of the contract, on one view is not an unsurprising outcome, but perhaps, Norman, one that, that, that might be helpful to those that are drafting GOAs now. Thanks, Valerie. And yes, certainly. I think from an industry lawyer's perspective, the outcome of this case is great news, that the written terms of the GOA will prevail. We as lawyers spend time, 150 pages of drafting, and it would be unfortunate if the courts were to imply a, a suite of terms into these types of agreements that were not written. Uh, in fact, I think that if the courts were to do so, and this case had gone the other way, you would see industry JOAs being amended to expressly disapply any obligations of good faith going forward. So I think it's been very helpful from an industry perspective. I think in particular, where, where we go back to the, the good faith allegations and the lack of good faith that was alleged here, there were two types of factual allegations made by Rockrose. One was that TACA had acted in its own commercial interests in seeking to acquire operatorship. And secondly, that um, the, the other co-ventures, GX and Spirit, had been induced by TACA 
by way of a side agreement capping operator transition costs to vote in favour of, of TACA and therefore attain the, the requisite 100% um, vote required. Um, I think from an industry perspective, then it's useful that the courts um, were willing, I think, in several ways to, to allow these types of arrangements, i.e. I think we can take from this case that it's OK to act in your own commercial interests and in taking decisions under joint operating agreements. And again, subject to the facts and circumstances, it may be OK to enter into side arrangements under your um, GOA. Uh, the, there's always been a concern in industry as to whether there are implied fiduciary duties in joint operating agreements. And, and here the court was very clear in saying because of the express no partnership clause that was within the JOA, that uh, fiduciary duties would not be implied among co-venturers. And I think that's very helpful in terms of lawyers giving advice on how parties can act going forward. That's not to say there's no fiduciary duty between an operator and co-venturers. That was not decided in this case, and, and there may well be a fiduciary duty there as a matter of agency. But I think generally it's been extremely helpful. I think another interesting angle, though, is Valerie, just going back to you, the, the wider OGA angle, which it may be worth saying a few words on. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Norman. Definitely an interesting angle, and I suspect not the last time that we'll see arguments based on the new regulatory system for the industry uh, coming up in relation to contractual disputes. It, the regime's only been in place for four years. We've seen a few arguments based on the Mayor UK strategy and the behaviour that was required to consider collaboration. The OGA strategy that came into effect in February this year has enhanced that requirement to an absolute obligation to collaborate among the parties that are uh, subject to the strategy and with other parties who are outside the scope of the strategy and so I suspect that we're going to see further arguments around the uh, effect that that could have on how parties behave in their contractual arrangements as we uh, move forward. I think also interesting that, that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that the court was not prepared to rely on the Mayor UK strategy to imply terms here was the fact that it postdated the drafting of those agreements by many years. I think it will be interesting to see how the court would approach the same question in relation to a GOA that had been prepared after the date of the Mayor UK strategy, or perhaps a GOA that contained a provision which requires the participants between themselves to, to apply um, the law as it changes from time to time. There was no such provision in this GOA, but in a different circumstance, it could have been a different outcome. Um, Philip, obviously the judgment focused on the implication of terms and, and the uh, interaction between that and the express terms of the contract. Do you think there's a broader relevance to the decision in that regard? I think perhaps the importance is the reinforcement of what the Supreme Court has already said about the importance of the express terms of the contract and not implying terms that are inconsistent with that. Ultimately, whilst there's a string of cases relating to the Braganza type implied term and also in relation to implied terms for exercising a discretion. Ultimately, whether a term should be implied or not, first depends upon the express terms of the contract, and second, whether the test for implied terms is met or not. It's simply not sufficient to latch on to a form of contracts that is in some cases had terms implied and say that that's enough. It really requires a focus upon the express terms themselves. And as Norman said, I think that's really good news for the industry. 
as most of these contracts are drafted by sophisticated commercial parties who give these issues some thought in advance uh, and the implication of those uh, of terms may cut across precisely what they're seeking to achieve. Thanks, Philip. Um, thanks, Norman. So uh, overall, an interesting decision, one that's hopefully helpful to the industry going forwards. We uh, hope you've enjoyed this podcast.